seated. Good morning, everybody. We found the roads difficult today. Uh, hopefully nobody, because it's just rain, but I'm glad that you guys are here. Are you guys awake? Yeah. 10.30, come on. All right, here we go. Everybody awake? You live? Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 uh, this morning. So we walked this, started this journey walking through Matthew, doing this series called The Kingdom. We started in, in uh, I guess it would have been September of 2019, and so we've been 16 months or whatever, and walking through Matthew, and we're coming up on the second pillar of teaching. We've talked about this before, but if you haven't been here, the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, and it's written around five critical key pillars of teaching. So you've got the Sermon on the Mount, which most people have heard of, the Sending of the Twelve, which is where we're going to be this morning, and then Matthew 13 is Parables of the Kingdom, Matthew 18 is Teaching on the Church, and then Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus teaching on end times. And so Matthew took these, these five pillars and put them down. And then in and out of those pillars, you have narratives, some of which are chronological, some are not. He took different stories that, that, would, that would connect together well in light of what he was trying to accomplish. When we went through Matthew 8 and 9, we talked about Jesus establishing that he possesses authority. And so Matthew took several stories that would point to not only him declaring or saying that he possessed authority, but him showing that and, and him actually displaying that he possesses absolute authority. And so now we're going to move into, into Matthew chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to talk about this sending of the 12. And this morning, I just want to introduce you to the characters, introduce you to the people that are, that are being sent out. Because uh, Jesus is sending people, he's been sending people for thousands of years. And in the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, it's going to introduce us to these 12 disciples. And when you think about the disciples, uh, immediately for me, the first thing I think of is just an unlikely group of heroes. Uh, Jesus called these guys to follow him. He would have picked people off the scrap heap. In the first century, rabbis would have traveled around looking at the, the young men growing up in the religious educational system, and they would have identified people and said, man, I think that guy right there, you have what it takes. I want." And they would invite them to follow. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me, and eventually I'm going to give the mantle to you to carry on the legacy of what I've taught you. So rabbis would go around, and they would find those guys, and they would call them out at a young age. And if you weren't chosen, then you would spend the rest of your life likely carrying on the family name, carrying on the family business, which is what a number of these disciples were doing. And so Jesus shows up, and he, and he picks the guys that nobody wants, the guys that the rest of the rabbis looked at and were like, nah. Uh, good luck with the family business, but I'm looking for somebody else. And the people no one wanted, the people that all of the other religious leaders were rejecting, Jesus picked these guys. And it's, and it's such an unlikely group of heroes. Like if you, if you think in, in the sports world or, or even in the movie world, oftentimes the hero is obvious. Like I think back to the golden glory days of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. He was the hero. Like you've got the iconic moment where he hits the shot against Cleveland over Craig Elo and it's become this, this incredibly uh, iconic moment that's played over and over again. But you kind of expected that. It's Michael Jordan. He's supposed to do that. But what about in 93 or 97 when Michael Jordan, instead of taking the game-winning shot, passes the ball to, to John Paxson? Or 97 when he says to Steve Kerr in the huddle, he says, be ready. If they do, if they do this, be ready. I'm going to pass you the ball. Be ready to take the shot. And Steve Kerr takes the shot and wins, the, wins not only the game, but wins the NBA Finals with that shot. Just kind of this unlikely hero. Or in movies, like the Batman and Superman movies, the, the hero's obvious. You know who the hero's going to be. But what about movies like The Wizard of Oz? 
Nobody thought the little girl from Kansas with the red slippers was going to be the one that would save the day. Or what about Forrest Gump? Certainly you did not start watching Forrest Gump thinking he's clearly going to be the hero. Like nobody, nobody thought that he was an unlikely hero. Or even animated movies. Uh, Inside Out is one of the movies we watched as our kids were, were younger. And you start watching it from the very beginning. You're like, man, sadness is really annoying. Like the less of her we could see, the better. And then in the end of the movie, who's the hero? The hero's sadness. And so you have these unlikely heroes that, that all of a sudden are set up in a situation where they seize the moment, they seize the opportunity, and they do what they didn't think they could do and what nobody else around them thought they could do either. And that's what happened with the disciples. Jesus took this cast of characters, this group of people that nobody else wanted, and he said, follow me. And when they said yes, they started down a journey where Jesus first changed them, but then eventually used them to change the world. And the sending of the 12 is a reminder to every one of us. It's a reminder to every one of us of what God can do through a life of someone that is fully surrendered to him. What God can do in my life and in your life when we simply choose to say yes to Jesus, not one yes to Jesus, but a lifetime of yeses to whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to do. And this passage is a reminder that he can use us, that maybe you're here this morning and you see yourself as unlikely, that's great. God's made a, made a name for himself of taking people just like you and just like me who didn't think they could, they could accomplish anything and using us to do incredible things for his glory and to advance his kingdom. And so as we get into this passage, I want you to keep that in mind of what God can do through a life that is fully surrendered to him. We're going to come back to that over the next several weeks as we walk through this teaching and walk through this chapter. But it begins in Matthew 10, verse 1. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples together, gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. Notice he said disciples first, and then now he says apostles. The word disciple, the simple definition of just that word, it means someone who's a learner. So disciple is someone who's a learner. Jesus called them and said, follow me. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to change you. And then now he's calling them apostles. Apostle means someone who is sent. You've got to rem remind yourself that God is ascending God. God has always been ascending God. God sent Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said to us in John chapter 17, just as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. God is ascending God. And so then he begins to list these 12 apostles. It says, first, Simon, also called Peter. Then Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So this is a military-style roll call as Jesus has summoned them together, and it's, it's listing them out. And in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the Gospels contains a list of the 12 disciples, the, the 12 apostles that are uh, that, that were sent out. And it's interesting to note that every time they're listed in all four of the Gospels, Peter is always the one that's listed first. And so Matthew lists these guys out. He says, Simon also called Peter. Peter was a type A personality. Peter was a natural leader. Not always a good leader, but Peter was a natural leader. He was a go-getter. He was someone who would make things happen. Peter had some incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful moments. He had some great moments. Think about him walking on water. 
Jesus is, is there in the storm, and, and Peter says, if it's you, then bid me to come out to you. Now, a lot of times we talk about Peter and go, yeah, he's the guy who sank when he saw the storm. He's also the guy who walked on water. Anybody else have that on the resume? Okay, if you took two or three steps, he walked on water. It's just an incredible moment for Peter. The other disciples are all crying in the boat. He's walking on water, even if just for a brief moment. How about in Matthew 16, when he declared that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, this open declaration, two and a half years in, Jesus, I believe that you are everything you said you are, and you can do everything that you said you could do. Or in Acts chapter two, when it's Peter who stands up and boldly proclaims the message of the gospel, and 3,000 people respond and say yes to Jesus. He had some incredible moments, but Peter also had some forgettable moments. Peter was opinionated. He was hard-headed, like most of us type A people are. He was impulsive. He didn't listen, which is interesting when you know that the name Simon, Simon means one who listens. But Peter didn't listen. Peter spent more time talking than listening. You've got this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus' in, as Jesus' image is completely changed, and he's up there, and it's with uh, Moses and Elijah, and they're on this mountain, and Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up there with him. And it's, it's one of those moments that you just don't ruin it by talking. Like, have you, have you ever been there, like a, a gorgeous sunrise or sunset, or, or maybe sitting by a fire or uh, the Grand Canyon or some, some of these incredible scenes that we have in the world around us? And you're there, and you don't want to be there with someone that wants to talk. You just want to take this moment in. This clearly is one of those moments. And Peter's up there, and he's quiet. You can just, if you're there, you can just kind of see, like, it's just building, and he's trying really hard not to say anything, and finally he just blurts out, this is so awesome. Like, let, let's just stay here. We'll get three tabernacles for each of you, and let's, let's just stay here. The other guys are like, what about the other nine disciples down at the bottom of the mountain waiting for us to come back? What about the mission? What about the sick people, all that? And Peter just, he just couldn't contain himself. Rather than listening and soaking in the moment, he had to speak. Or when Jesus, right after he makes the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, immediately after that, it says that Jesus began to tell them that he was gonna go to Jerusalem and he would suffer many things. And it says in the next verse that Peter pulled Jesus to the side and began to rebuke him. That's incredibly bold, misguided, but incredibly bold. As he's rebuking Jesus, saying, this is not gonna happen to you, that's the passage where Jesus looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Like, definitely not one of Peter's greatest moments. Or how about denying that he knew Jesus? Again, not listening. Jesus tells him this is going to happen. And he says, no, it won't. And Jesus says, before the sun comes up tomorrow, you're going to de deny that you know me three different times. Or Peter in the early church getting sucked in by, by the legalism of things that were happening in the first century. But you know, Jesus knew exactly who Peter was. He knew the good the bad, the frustrating, but he chose him anyway. And when Peter fell, it was Jesus who restored him. He believed in who Peter could become through the gospel, and he sent him out. And maybe you connect with that. Maybe some of the things about Peter, you go, man, I, I get it. Like, I, like I'm impulsive. I'm hard-headed. And if you want to know if you are, but you're not sure, are there people looking at you right now? I don't tell you that, yeah, they're, they're looking at you going, yes, Peter is clearly you. If your wife is nudging you guys, you know that she's telling you this is, this is something that you're, you get this, you connect here. But Jesus still called Peter. He still used him in an incredible way in spite of his, his failings, in spite of his, 
his less than desirable moments. Or how about Andrew, the next one that's listed, Peter's brother. Andrew was the first one we know to have called Jesus the Messiah. He came to Peter and said to Peter, we found the Messiah. But Andrew struggled to trust Jesus. He had a strong desire to believe, but unbelief was always creeping in. You see it in John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000. There's this massive crowd of people, and Andrew is on the hunt, likely in a, a, a um, display of faith, looking for food. And he finds a, a boy with five loaves and two fishes, and he comes to Jesus. And you can almost sense the, the belief in his voice when he says, I found this boy with this lunch. But then the next sentence, you see the unbelief creep in as he says, but honestly, what is this among so many? Like there's that faith, there's that belief, but then there's also that doubt that creeps in. Or how about James and John? These were brothers, these were fishermen. They were known as the sons of Zebedee until Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They were bold, they were edgy, they were a bit aggressive. There's an instance where a Samaritan village doesn't receive Jesus with hospitality, which really shouldn't have come as a surprise if you know the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. Why would the Samaritans be embracing this Jewish rabbi? Because they don't receive him, James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us permission to call fire down from heaven and consume all of them. There's another instance where Jesus and all of the other disciples are there and James and John come to him and say, give us permission, grant us that one can sit on your right and the other can sit on your left in the kingdom. That's pretty bold. That's pretty aggressive. That's pretty careless to think that the other 10 are sitting there. I'm sure they were thinking, yeah, we'd like to sit there too. But they asked Jesus, give us permission to do this. In Mark chapter nine, John tells Jesus that there are other people casting out demons in his name he says, but don't worry, Jesus, we shut them down because they're not a part of our group. Like, this is the only group that matters. You kind of see that in church culture today, don't you? Like, we're the only game in town. If you go to some other church, like, they don't have going on what we have going here. The Holy Spirit's only operating here. So John's like, it's just the 12 of us. Anybody else, we got to shut them down. And so you see Jesus calling guys like this, people with these, with these flaws, with these, with these weaknesses, could you imagine a scene as Jesus is teaching a lesson on loving others and loving unconditionally? And James and John are like, man, great message. I hope everybody was listening. By the way, can we take out these Samaritans? Jesus is saying, lower yourself. The greatest in my kingdom is the servant, the one who lowers himself and serves with a nothing beneath me mentality. And they're saying, I hope the other 10 were listening, but Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? And Jesus called him. He called him to say yes. He called these brother to sur brothers to surrender control of all of their lives to him. And as they did that, he wrote a new story. You know, he didn't rid them of their boldness. He harnessed it and he redirected it. This is a, a general rule. This isn't always the case. But in most of our lives, Jesus didn't come to eliminate our weaknesses. He came to redeem them that there are things about us that are weaknesses that harnessed and redirected can be incredible strengths for the kingdom. Boldness isn't a bad thing. Boldness can be a very selfish thing when they're using their boldness to advance their own agenda. For certain, it was a weakness. But what about when they boldly proclaimed the message of the gospel even when it came to potentially losing their lives? See the difference? 
Uh, Jesus came to redeem the things about us that we see as weakness. That maybe today you're, you're a risk taker. Misguided, that can be a problem, but risk taking for the kingdom can be an incredibly valuable strength. And so Jesus came to redeem these strengths to, or weaknesses, to redirect them to become strengths. John, the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, refers to himself throughout his writing as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was a guy who was full of himself originally, but now he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at first, that may, that may sound a little arrogant until you realize Jesus loved all of them, and John knew that, and John didn't even want to write his name in the book because he didn't want the focus to be about him. He wanted the focus to be about Jesus. And Jesus redeemed these lives. How about Philip? Philip, the next guy talked about, Philip, maybe you'll connect with him. He was calculated. He was the numbers guy. When feeding the 5,000, Jesus asks an obviously rhetorical question. He says, how much food would it take to feed this crowd? There's no reason to answer, but Philip immediately is like, okay, there's X number of men. There's this number of women. Okay, some of these are babies. They're still nursing. We don't have to worry, worry about them. Some of these little kids, they would small, but not as much. Some of these teenage boys, they're going to eat a lot. And so he's doing all the math, and he's like, Jesus, I got it. If we had 200 denarii, which is eight months' salary, if we had eight months' salary, that still wouldn't be enough. Like, Philip was a numbers guy. He was a, he was a detailed guy. He was a realist. He said, man, thousands of people and no food in sight, this is just not going to end well. Philip was the guy that would say, Jesus, I'll go anywhere you want me to go and I'll do anything you want me to do. I just need the plan and I just need the details. No matter how bad it's gonna get, it's okay. I just gotta know what I'm signing up for. In our home, Jen would connect with Philip. Jen's a, a, a detail person. She's a, a numbers person. I'm nothing like that. She's the type of person who uh, will read the owner's manual on a toaster. She wants to make sure she knows what, 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 uh, what features it has. I'm like, up and down. I'm pretty sure that's about it. She'll sit, when we travel, she'll read the car rental agreement. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it says the same thing it said for the last 20 years, but go ahead and read it again. She's the person that says, I'm up for an adventure. You just got to give me the details. Where for me, it's different. I say, if, if there are details, it's not an adventure. Like, just get in the car and start driving. Even at Generation, some of the things that we do, it's like, well, uh, Jen will ask questions. And I'm like, I don't know, we'll just figure it out. We'll just build the plane in the air. Like, it's, it's going to be okay. We just got to keep moving forward. But maybe you connect with Philip. Maybe you say, I'm willing to do anything that Jesus asks of me. I just want to see the details. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what it costs me, I'll pay the price. I just got to know going in what that's going to be like. Or maybe Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. In John chapter 1 is when we first meet him, and uh, he's told that the Messiah has been found, and his response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is a place he clearly looked down on. Many Jews did. Nazareth would have been the other side of the tracks. To be honest with you, there's a bit of, of prejudice in his statement. Bartholomew likely would have struggled greatly with Jesus pursuing Samaritans and Gentiles because he was a Jew first and Jew only kind of guy. But in the end, he took the gospel to India and eventually was crucified preaching the gospel to the very Gentiles that at one time he looked down on. 
you see this theme as Jesus is calling people who are broken, just like you and I. People who are flawed, just like you and I. And he says, say yes to following me. Say yes to surrendering control of all of your life to me, and I will write a new story. I'll do something in you and through you that you can't even imagine that you could have never done if left to your own devices. He goes on and he lists Thomas. Thomas is the, the skeptic. In fact, we have a name that we refer to people as that came from Thomas's story. If you've ever had someone who's doubting all the time, we call him what? We call him a doubting Thomas. That's Thomas from Jesus when he rose from the dead and the disciples told him about it. He's like, I ain't gonna believe until I see the hole in his side and the holes in his hands and feet. And until I get to put my fingers in there, I ain't gonna believe. He said, once that happens, I'll believe. But Thomas was the doubter. He was the skeptic. He was an investigator. I will believe it. I just need to see it. If you follow Enneagrams, if any of you guys are connected to that, he would have been an Enneagram five. Uh, any fives in here? Okay, nobody. Good. All right. So nobody connects to Thomas. All right, moving right along. Uh, how about Matthew? Matthew's the center of the group. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman government. The Romans were a hard, oppressive people, and they would tax the nation basically whenever they felt like it. And in order to collect taxes, they would employ Jews to carry out the taxation. So tax collectors could also charge a significant amount on top of the tax, which is how they were paid, which at its worst is believed that that number could have been as much as 90%. You could have been taxed as much as 90% of your income. Some of you are freaking out about Joe Biden. Um, 90% of your income. Did you hear that? But understand what would happen. These were Jews employed by the Romans to tax Jews. So these were Jews who got rich at the expense of their own people. They abused their own people in order to gain wealth. To be certain, Matthew was the one guy in the group that all of the other disciples agreed didn't belong there. That when Jesus was telling them, one of you is going to betray me, they were all looking at Matthew going, we all know who it's going to be. He'd have been the lowest of the low in the group in terms of the way the others viewed him. But Jesus called Matthew, and he says, Matthew, give all of that up, your wealth, your comfort, your security. And Matthew was willing to say, yes, Matthew was willing to give all of that up in order to pursue Jesus. Goes on and talks about James and Thaddeus. These are two of the disciples that we know very little about. They're just kind of passing glances. And these are guys that are often overlooked because their contribution isn't mentioned. And because we know little about them, we often see them as insignificant. And I think for some of us, that, that, hit, that hits home because you think that what you're doing for the kingdom is insignificant. That it doesn't really matter, that nobody's noticing, that nobody's writing books about you, nobody's asking you to to appear on their blog or their podcast. No, nobody's inviting you to come to their conference to teach and share your story about what you're doing for the kingdom. But what you and I have to understand is regardless of what other people see, God sees, and your, significant, and your contribution is significant. That where he's placed you is an opportunity to make disciples. It's an opportunity to advance the kingdom. I know with light of what we're walking through, some of you right now, you see yourself as nothing more than a mom trying to navigate online school. You're like the biggest battle I fight every day is with dirty dishes and laundry. And you just see what you're doing as insignificant, but God has planted you in a place 
to raise up little disciple makers, that you are making a significant investment in the kingdom. You've just got to believe that. That you're here this morning, you think, man, I'm just a school teacher, I'm just a banker, I'm just a barista, I'm just a line worker. You are a minister of the gospel and God has planted you where you are for a reason to advance his kingdom to make disciples. There's a perspective shift. We talked about this last week, but there's a perspective that has to change. I don't work from nine to five so I can make disciples from five to nine. I get to make disciples from nine to five that God has planted me there. He sent me there as a missionary and bonus. You're getting paid to do kingdom work. It's just a shift of perspective that we have, that we have to have that what we're doing for the kingdom is significant and it matters. And understand this, these guys are no less apostles than Peter, James, and John. And in eternity, they are promised that they will have just as much authority and power as the other apostles. Jesus said in Luke 22 that they would rule and reign with the rest of the disciples, with the rest of the apostles. Insignificant, almost invisible, does not mean that your contribution doesn't matter. Or maybe Simon the Zealot. Anybody know what a zealot is? Probably not. That's okay. Here's what a zealot was. A zealot was a part of a political party. Be more specific, zealots were a religious political party. So zealots were a religious group of people that believed they should radically change their culture by their involvement in the political realm. That's starting to connect a little bit more today. It's their responsibility to change their culture by their involvement in the political realm. Israel was under foreign occupation, but God's will, this is the zealot's perspective, God's will was for them to be a mosaic theocracy where God is the supreme ruler. Now Rome's taken over, that's a problem, so now it's their responsibility to return the nation to essentially, I'll use American lingo, to one nation under God, a, a mosaic theocracy where God is the ruler under the, the law that Moses had established. And so zealots took it upon themselves to liberate the nation from Rome and to return to what they were founded on. They did this by doing several things. One was inciting rebellion. That, it, that it's okay to rebel against Rome because ultimately we are to be a mosaic theocracy. They did it by targeting and attacking Jews who were sympathetic to Rome. And they also did it by assassinating Roman officials anytime they had the chance. In fact, Matthew, the tax collector, would have been a potential and justified target of Simon the Zealot. Tax collectors and zealots did not belong on the same team. It's like putting two beta fish in a small tank. One of them's going to die. But Jesus said to each of them, to Matthew and to Simon, he said, follow me. Notice Jesus didn't say, Matthew, let me get on board with what you're doing for the Roman government because there's a lot of wealth there and we'll use, that, we'll use that money for the kingdom. He said, Matthew, lay that aside, follow me. He didn't sympathize with where Simon was coming from either because at the end of the day, political establishments don't matter. We're advancing God's kingdom. Jesus said, Simon, can you put all of that on hold? Can you release all of that and will you come and follow me? And if you'll surrender control of all of your life to me, if you'll lay down your political activism, I'll bring you together and I'll write a new story. 
See, it's the gospel that brings us together. It's Jesus that brings us together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. He brought Jews and Gentiles into one people. He brought tax collectors and zealots into one people. Listen to me. He brought Republicans and Democrats into one people. If the gospel is what brings us together, then the gospel is the only thing that can keep us together. The gospel brings unity nothing in this world does. The gospel brings unity that this world doesn't get. And when you think about the differences among this group, don't you think it struck differently in, Matthew, in John chapter 13 when Jesus said, by all this, the world will know that you're my disciples when you love one another? Don't, don't, don't you think it hit a little bit different when he looked at Simon and he looked at Matthew? Guys who likely when they were sitting at the table would have found ways to sit four or five people away from each other. Or even the way Simon would have viewed Philip. Philip was, a, uh, was, was one part of the culture where uh, he, he embraced the Greek culture. Zealots would have hated and despised that. Don't you think it hit differently? Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Because what makes the world stop in awe is not when we love what we're like. That's easy. They do that. It's easy to love people who look, think, and act like me. What makes the world stop is when they see us in spite of our differences coming together. Not merely tolerating each other. Like, like, like what would it look like if we could get to the point where, where we don't even have to avoid the conversations because it's okay to have the conversations where we disagree because, because we understand it, that those disagreements aren't what bring us together. It's the gospel that brings us together. That Jesus came to establish something and to do something in these guys' lives and then eventually to use them in a way that would begin to advance the gospel all the way around the world. These are the people he called, even Judas Iscariot. Judas is the guy who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Three years with Jesus, and at the end of it, Judas says, Jesus, you're not worth anything more to me than a common slave. But even Judas was given a chance. Judas is a reminder that none of us are beyond the reach of the gospel. And I wanted today as we walk in, as we begin to walk into Matthew chapter 10 to stop today, and I wanted to walk through slowly each of these guys because I think there's a connecting point for every one of us. You may not connect with all 12, but you, you and I certainly connect with one or two. And for many of us, we, we tend to see ourselves as unusable. That God should look for someone better than me. That God could never use me to advance the kingdom. But for centuries, God has used people just like you and just like me. People who are willing to say yes. Whether you're opinionated or impulsive like Peter. Maybe you long for truth like Andrew, but unbelief is constantly trying to creep in. 
Maybe you're calculated and detailed like Philip, I'll follow, I just need the plan. Or Matthew, you know that you've done things wrong, you've hurt others, and you feel like you're just not qualified for the job. James and John, edgy, aggressive, bold. Simon. If we're honest, some of us are distracted because we're more concerned about what's happening in our country politically than we are with what's happening spiritually. I'll be honest with you, I think some of us, we have allowed our politics to shape the gospel instead of allowing the gospel to shape our politics. We've tried to make the two one and the same. And maybe you push back and say, but Jared, don't you care? Don't you care that we may be losing our religious freedom? Uh, Newsflash, how many people in this room are privileged enough to get paid to do this? Do you know what happens if we lose religious freedom? I no longer have a job. So for you, you may go, man, we may not be able to gather on a Sunday morning. For me, I'm going, I gotta come up with a new creative way to feed my family, and there are not a lot of jobs out there looking for someone who can stand up and talk for 30 minutes. I'm gonna have to like reinvent myself if that happens, rediscover giftings and abilities that I hope I have somewhere that I'm just not aware of. I absolutely care. It does matter. But I also know that Jesus tasked us with the mission of advancing his kingdom And the only hope for this world is found in the message and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the gospel. Advancing the kingdom, preaching the gospel to people who are far from God. That we've been given an opportunity, we've been called to say yes, just like these guys said yes. Jesus took this group of of most likely to screw it up, bunch of opinionated, doubtful, insecure disasters. And he said, I will bring you together. I will change you. And then I will use you to change the world with my message. All they had to do was say yes. And that's all we have to do. Say yes to give up our comfort, to give up our security, to sacrifice our agendas, to say yes to fully, to say yes fully to whatever it is the master demands of us. I think back to Matthew chapter four, verse 18. Go way back to the beginning with Peter and Andrew. It says in Matthew 4, 18, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. They said yes. And when it says they left their nets, they didn't drop their nets and go, okay, we'll fish tomorrow. They left their nets. That means they quit their jobs. They sacrificed everything. There was nothing from that day forward that they would hold back. They weren't saying yes to follow Jesus today. They were saying yes to a lifetime of following Jesus. They weren't saying one yes. They were saying yes to a lifetime of of yeses. And that's the only thing that Jesus asks of each of us is to say yes. Is to say yes to whatever it is that he's calling us to do. You know, Generation, our goal this year is we want everybody that calls Generation home, whether you're in this room or you're watching online, we want you to say yes to something that Jesus is calling you to. 
that, you, that we want this year to, the be, to be the beginning of a lifetime of yeses. Whatever the master demands, whatever the master calls me to, I'm going to say yes. I don't want you to say yes to me. I don't want you to say yes to anyone else. I want you to say yes to Jesus, yes to the master. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to say yes. This morning, maybe you're here and the first yes for you is yes to his offer of eternal life. But the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived a sinless life. He traded his righteousness for my sinfulness when he died for me. And he rose again three days later to declare victory over sin and death. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He lived a sinless life. But it's our sin that separates us from God. And Jesus came into this world, lived the life we couldn't live, and, and sacrificed his life. He offers us a trade, his righteousness for my sinfulness. Righteousness means to have a right standing in the eyes of God. And this morning, if you're, if you're here, you have an opportunity to say yes to that trade. Jesus says, you give me your sinfulness, your sinful condition. And in its place, I will give you my righteousness to have a perfect right standing in the eyes of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus became the sacrifice for sin. In fact, it says he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This morning, if you're here, and you've never said yes to that offer of eternal life. Simply a matter of believing that Jesus died to pay for your sins, believing that in your heart, and then confessing it with your mouth audibly, telling him something like this. God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I believe that Jesus came into this world. He lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to pay for my sins, to be victorious. And I put my faith and trust in that and that alone. If you did that today, the Bible says that you are now an adopted son or daughter of God, that God is now your father. He calls you his child. And then maybe you're here and, and you, you've done that. But are you living the life of a disciple? One of the most foundational teachings of first century disciples is they said yes to the master. They said yes to the rabbi. Whatever the rabbi asked them to do or told them to do, they said yes, there was no option. Are you living that life, that surrendered life? You said yes to Jesus as savior, but are you saying yes to him as Lord and master? I wanna challenge you to ask this week, Ask him, what are you telling me to say yes to? What step are you calling me to take? And I want to challenge you to take it. To say yes to whatever it is that he's calling you to. So Father, we come to you this morning. We know that you loved us enough to send your son, that we have a relationship with you. That Jesus, we are in you and your spirit is living in us. You've given us everything that we need to say yes. 
And God, I pray that the story of generation this year would, that, would be that this is a congregation of people that just say yes to whatever it is you're calling us to. That we would be encouraged by other people who are saying yes. And that our story would be a challenge and an encouragement to others to do the same thing. Jesus, I pray that, you're, that you'd be honored, that you'd be glorified and magnified in this offering that we bring to you this morning. You would help us to, to, to move and function in spite of our fear. And we would live the life that you've called us to live, that we'd be surrendering control of all of our lives to you, that we would be saying yes. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it.